Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are in this space. Now, this is a new space for us, and we know that you're here in it. And we pray that it would become more and more like home, it would become more and more like church, it would be a space where the Holy Spirit is present, where worship happens, where lives are changed, where the gospel is preached and promoted, and pray that you'd be with us. I pray you'd be with me as I preach today, I pray that you would give me joy, I pray you'd help me to honor the text, I pray that we'd see Jesus through it, I pray we'd leave changed. I don't know what our expectations are as we came into this new space today. But I pray that we would have the expectation that Jesus is on the move and he wants to speak to us to change us so that we can live his way in his world. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. We've been in a series that we entitled Loyal Love. We have made it to the last chapter of Joseph's story and in fact the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. And this may have been a year where you needed evidence of God's love. You may be physically worn down, emotionally worn down, spiritually feeling thin, and that's one one of the reasons we have gone into this story is because it's a difficult story where you see ample evidence, especially in Genesis chapter 50, of God's loyal, hesed, steadfast, never-ending love. I have needed reminders of God's love this year, and I hope that this challenging story has been a sweet reminder that even amidst the difficulty, God is faithful, God is good, and God is on the move. He's loyal. And he's loving. As you track with me, I think you may have a handout. Some of this may go on the screen as well. Of course, this is almost like we're launching the church uh, from from day one. Again, there's going to be a lot of evolution over the next few weeks and months as we figure out how to make this space feel like Trinity and make it feel like a space for us. So thank you as we figure out the technology and the Wi-Fi and the different aspects of doing church in here today. But I think we printed something in case this cuts out. But for now, it looks like we're good. In context, Joseph's father, his name is Jacob. Jacob has recently passed away, and for the first time in nearly three decades, Joseph and his brothers and their children, whoever wanted to go with them, traveled back up to Canaan. He has not been there. It's about 200 miles away from where he's been living for nearly 30 years in Egypt. He finally gets to go back to bury his father. And all of the family members, they come back. They're not going to stay in Canaan. This is still part of the time, potentially, of famine and recovery. And so they come back to the land of Goshen, which is Egypt. They begin to make their way and to make their home back in this foreign place, in this foreign land. And because Jacob has passed away, the brothers think to themselves, this is probably not good for us. This might be a moment when Joseph is finally going to take revenge for what we did to him nearly 30 years ago. And so they make up a story, and they send Joseph a messenger saying, Dad said to forgive us for what we did to you. And of course, this is not a true part of the story. This is their fear speaking. And so they send a messenger. They don't even go themselves. They don't want to show up in his presence. They say, Dad said to forgive us, Joseph, for the evil that we committed against you. And if you look at the text, it says after they have this conversation, it actually says that Joseph begins to weep. He begins to cry for the seventh time in this story. Seven times we learn that Joseph weeps. And it's interesting that he's not weeping because of their confession. Actually, they have not confessed their sin to him until this point. They have had a reunion, but there has been no real reconciliation. But this is not why he's crying in Genesis chapter 50. He's weeping because it's been over 17 years since they've been reunited, and they still suspect that he is bent on revenge. And he hears their words, and they assume his hatred, and they assume his anger, and it says Joseph weeps. 
And then in verses 19 through 21, which is where we're going to focus the sermon today, he tells them not to fear. And really, he gives them three reasons why they shouldn't. And I think amidst our own challenges and amidst our own worries and against our fears, these same three reasons can provide some hope for us as well. So verses 19 through 21, three things that Joseph says. He says, do not fear, number one, because he's going to refuse to play God. Number two, do not fear because Joseph can discern God's goodness amidst all of this dysfunction and evil. He can see God's faithfulness. And then number three, do not fear, and he offers a personal pledge of provision, right? So those three reasons, verses 19 through 21. Under point one, Joseph refusing to play God. Look again at verse 18. Verse 18, we read, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I? In the place of God? Now, of course, Joseph's life dramatically changed 17 years uh, when he was 17 years old as a young boy when he was trafficked into slavery in Egypt. He had no family, he had no familiarity, he had no common language or tradition. Joseph entered into another world against his will. But as the story has been told over the past few weeks, and as we've read from Genesis 37 now through the end of the story in 50, God was clearly loyal to him. God was with Joseph in the pit. And in time, through the Lord's provision, Joseph experiences this unique and providential rise to power, which meant in a very real way that Joseph was actually primed and positioned to take revenge on his brothers, and they knew it. Joseph's got the clout, Joseph's got the power, and now with his father gone, he's actually got the opportunity. Because of his rise to power, Joseph was the savior of Egypt. Because of his wisdom, because of what he had foretold in in Pharaoh's dreams about the famine and then the years of provision, the way in which they had to save, he had risen to number two in Egypt. He was literally the savior of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But even though he was like a god, He refuses to play God. He refuses to stand in God's place. But playing God is so human. And one of the ways we do this is by determining what is good and what is true. We craft our own morality. We craft our own version of stories and beliefs. It goes back to the very beginning. Remember when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent seduced them to believe what? That God wasn't trustworthy. And so instead of listening to what God had said, he said, why don't you go ahead and make your own choices? Why don't you play God? Why don't you do what you think is right? And so the serpent came and seduced them to believe that God wasn't good, that he wasn't faithful, that God was lying to them, and that if they ate of this forbidden tree, they would, do you remember what he said? They would actually become like God. And so they took, and they ate, and they decided to do life their way. They defined morality. They defined belief according to their own customs, according to their own traditions, instead of following what God had given them. A few chapters later at the Tower of Babel, you find that exact same impulse. People had advanced. They had all this technological kind of innovation. They decided that they wanted to create cities and towers that would distinguish them from the other parts of creation. They wanted to reach into the heavens. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to play God. And this impulse has stayed with us since the very beginning. The Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God, but we are not created to sit on his throne. 
But late modernism, where we live right now, late modernism has gotten rid of God. God is not part of the secular storyline that most of us live within, that all of us live within. God isn't real. We're here by chance. And so if God isn't real and we're in charge, then we write all the rules. We define our own morality. We create our own ethics. And if it's up for grabs and no one actually has the right to tell anybody else what is more true or less true, then what we end up doing is we create tribes where I say, my tribe has a better truth than your tribe. And we all know that when you create tribes, tribes end up warring against one another because we have rejected God. This is where we've ended up today. And you see it more clearly than maybe you've ever seen it in 2020 and 2021. Tribalism, the determination of truth. It's up to you. You play God. And so we sit in God's seat. We play God and we define what's good and true and we write our own versions of morality. But another aspect of this, we also assume control. And this one hurts my feelings too. I like to be in control. We assume control and we take control and sovereignty. We wake up day after day assuming that safety and security and purpose and meaning and joy and identity are ours to craft and to create. We use money. We use love. We use romance. We use affection. We use these things that God has given us in order to separate us from the reality that if I can just have enough, this is the storyline we tell ourselves, if I can just get enough, if I can just have enough, what we're saying is, well, then I can have comfort. But really what we're saying is, then I'll be in control and I won't have to lean on God anymore for self-definition. I won't have to look to Him if I can create my own bank account that controls my future. I won't have to look to Him for meaning and belonging if I can find some other human being to bring into my life. This is what we do, right? We take control. We assume sovereignty, We do that until something difficult happens, a recession, maybe a pandemic, a job loss, a breakup, or a divorce, or a cancer. These moments have the potential to wake us up to the reality that we're not God, and we should stop acting like it. If you go to the Joseph story, this is exactly what God has been doing through his many, many years of trial and pain in the pit God had had given Joseph this crystallized vision that God was in charge and Joseph wasn't. Proverbs 16.9 says this, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord actually establishes their steps. See, what Joseph is essentially saying when he gets to this point in his confession to the brothers, do not fear, am I in the place of God? What he's essentially saying is, remember, I'm the dreamer. I've had dreams, but the plans are all his. The timing is his. The course of these coming to fruition is his. The steps are his. The sun and the moon and the rain and all of this that's happened in Egypt and the surrounding area with these years of plenty and these years of famine, all of it's his. I mean, the introduction that we're given to Joseph is of, of, of this dreamer. And the first dream that we, that we hear is that he's going to have his brothers and his father and mother bow down to him. But he, is he thinking to himself, oh, this is going to happen in my hometown, in my homeland, in some point in the near future. It takes decades, and he's in Egypt. Right? He has decades in prison and indentured servitude, and now he's spent decades as number two in Egypt. He's got to be thinking to himself, what an insane story. Man, I had dreams and I had plans. But see, God is in control. Am I in the place of God? 
Look at what he's done. And that pain, friends, it's those difficult years that woke him up to the reality that he was not going to stand or sit in God's chair. The brothers assumed that he hated them, that he wanted to take revenge. And Joseph doesn't mince words. He says, what you did to me was evil. You did have intentions that were against me, and that deserves to be judged, but I will not be the one to judge it. I will not define reality or morality or what needs to happen. As for me, I will forgive you, and I will leave this judgment to the Lord. Fear not, number one. Joseph refuses to play God. Number two, Joseph discerns God's goodness amidst a huge mess. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is important. This is a unique place in the scriptures where people quote it over and over again. Let's see if we can break it down a little bit. Christianity says that we are each of us, all of us, 100% morally responsible human beings. God has not created one puppet, and yet this text tells us that he is 100% sovereign, providential, and in control. So which is it? Is he providential or are you morally responsible? And the Bible says yes to all of it. Your choices matter. God has given us freedom. And sometimes that freedom leads to love and kindness, and sometimes that freedom leads to animosity and evil. But what this text and really what the scripture is showing us and this place in Genesis 50 in particular with glorious clarity is showing us is that our God alone can flip evil on its head. Nobody else can do that. It might happen, oh happenstance. This is what God does over and over and over again. Our God alone can turn evil on its head. Only Jesus is able to weave something redemptive from the wreckage. Maybe you're familiar with an author by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was somebody who became a quadriplegic very early in life. She's a profound thinker and speaker and writer. And here's what she has to say. She says, when all these things happen, all this mess, when famines and crib deaths occur, when snake bites and gas station robberies and pistol whippings happen, God has not taken his hand off the wheel for a nanosecond. Psalm 103.19 is pithy and powerful. His kingdom rules over all. He considers these awful and often evil things tragedies, and he takes no delight in misery, but he is determined to steer them and use suffering for his own ends. My friend and mentor, Steve Estes, once told me, Satan may power the ship of evil, but God steers it to serve his own ends and his own purposes. Isn't that amazing? Satan may power the ship of evil, but God steers it to serve his own ends and his own purposes. Joseph clearly understood his brother's intentions. You intended evil against me. Their actions, their intentions were bent on evil when they callously sold him into slavery. But as Derek Kidner has written, Joseph could also discern God's providence in man's malice. He could see what God was up to through all of those years of waiting and trial and pain. He'd gotten a glimpse of God's goodness. He could see the brother's evil intentions when they looked at him and they enslaved him and they sold him off. But he could also see the ways in which God had redirected all of that evil to serve his own purposes. Do you believe God can do that? Do you believe that's what he's up to in the world? How do we know that this is as true for us as it was for Joseph? That's a good question. 
how do we know it's as true for us as it was for Joseph? And we have to look to Jesus and the cross. Remember, when Jesus Christ was crucified, it was the intention of those men to murder him and to destroy his name, his reputation, and his memory. They were literally hell-bent on evil. They hated what he stood for. They hated who he hung out with, who he loved, how he loved. They despised his care for sinners. They loathed his willingness to serve with people on the margins, people on the sidelines. They rejected his claim to be the Son of God. They hated everything about Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, when the apostle Peter is preaching to literally thousands of people, listening to the gospel for the first time, here's what he said. He said, men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen carefully to this verse, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. It was a definite plan of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. This was literally the darkest moment in human history. Right? The only sinless human being and the Son of God was betrayed by those he came to love, those he came to save, accused of blasphemy, and nailed to a cross as a wannabe Savior. But only our God can turn evil on its head. Satan may have been powering the ship for evil, but God had nothing but plans to steer that ship for his good, right? Good purposes and good intentions for his own ends, which was the redemption of people, the saving of many lives. Friends, all along, the reality of the human story is that we have been placing ourselves in God's chair, in his seat. We've been standing in his place, yet the gospel shows us that all along, God was plotting and he was planning to stand in your place, in my place. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. See, and if Jesus or if God can use something like what happened to Jesus Christ to save us, the reality is, this is so important for you, if he can take a crucifixion in order to redeem humanity, then the reality is that he can use any form of evil for his good purposes, and that's often what he's doing. He's using one form of pain and suffering in order to war against another. He uses pain and suffering in your life, namely, to erode the thing going on in your soul and your heart, your sin. You see that? Let me show you why. God permits, one author writes, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. So ask the question, what does he love? Well, outside of the maximization of his glory, he loves you. So he's going to allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, which is to get your heart back. He wants your affection. There is something warring against your heart, your mind, your soul every single day that you wake up. And he says, I want them. I want all of them. I'll use anything at my disposal to get their affections back. 
The, the enemy may want to use it. Brokenness. We live in a broken world. This isn't always the devil or God coming to kind of smite you. Sometimes brokenness is just a reality. But we live in a broken world that will be redeemed. But the reality of the gospel is that Jesus can use that. What the enemy or your own self or your own discouragement or your own ego wants to use to kind of push you down. God says, I'll use it to build them up to renew and to remake them. I want all of them. I can use suffering to weed out what's really going on in their soul. Friends, what separates us from God is our sin. Do you hate it? He goes, I'll use anything at my disposal to get it out of their heart so I can have them back again. To quote Joni Erickson Tata again, she says, I have to remember that the core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin even up to my dying breath. Did you hear that? That's the core of his plan, to rescue you from sin even up to our dying breath. My pain and discomfort are not his ultimate focus. He cares about these things, but they are merely symptoms of the real problem. God cares most not about making my life happy, healthy, and free of trouble, but about teaching me to hate my transgressions and to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this means, as we've said somewhere in this series, that you can walk through life as the ultimate realist. This is what Christianity offers you. The pain of your life, Christianity does not say minimize it, but it says, do you believe that God can use that for your good to remake your heart, to rewind the story, right, to put you back together? Do you believe that that's what God is up to? This is where Joseph looks his brothers in the eye. When they fear him, he goes, do not fear. You meant evil against me. But God is so big, so good, so redemptive, he is going to use anything and everything to win your soul back. That's what he's up to. This is the God we serve. This is what this story is about. And we don't just have to lean on Joseph to believe it. right? We get to lean on Jesus, the Savior, to believe it. Go look up Romans 8, 28. God is working all things because of Jesus Christ for your good. Last reason, do not fear, friends. Do not fear. Joseph says, am I God? Number two, he says, I can discern God's goodness amidst all of this mess. And number three, he offers a personal pledge of provision. Look at verse 21. Last reason. So do not fear, my brothers. I will provide for you and your little ones. Isn't that a sweet phrase? I love that phrase. I don't think I've read that very often in the scriptures. I will provide for you and your little ones. You can hear the tenderness. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Derek Kidner, he says that Joseph is offering to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. What he's doing is he's saying, look, I could forgive you, all right? You said dad wanted me to forgive you. He's not around anymore. I'll at least give you a big plot of land. Go build some houses. I don't want to see you anymore. I mean, very easily he could have kind of pushed them off and given them an inheritance. I'm second in command. I can give you whatever I want. Just don't come back into my space and my city. You're forgiven. Go away. That's not what he does. He offers his time, he offers his possessions, he offers to personally care for them. There is an emphatic I in verse 21. It's not this kind of generic philanthropy. Yeah, I'll bless you, just kind of, I've got a lot of money now, just go. He's saying, no, no, I, I'll care for you. I'll give you my time. I will give you myself. See, in the gospel, Jesus also makes a personal pledge and a promise to each of us that can work to drive out 
each of our fears. Yes, because of the cross, sins are gone. We have been forgiven. It's at least that. But Jesus says, look, I want to offer you more. How come? Because he loves to give more grace, more than we need, more than we expect, more than we deserve. He says, I want to give you more. Four little aspects to this offer of personal provision from Jesus. Number one, he says, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to place you in a family. I'm never going to leave you. And I so deeply identify with my people that I share in their suffering. I will send you a helper. The helper's job, the Holy Spirit's job, is to make the Jesus story real to the Christian and the non-Christian. That's what the Holy Spirit's up to. He goes, you heard this thing called the gospel? The Holy Spirit brings it to life. He makes you hear something and go, yes, that's true. I hear a lot of news coming at me. What's the truest thing? What is God about? What is the promise? What's he up to? What could he do in my life and our community? The Holy Spirit takes the scripture and brings it to life. Have you walked with the Holy Spirit lately? It's not complex. It's not mysterious. It goes like this. Holy Spirit, come and help me. Holy Spirit, take the truth of God and make it real. Holy Spirit, I'm going to take some steps today. Most of them are going to be self-directed. Come in and guide my feet. Come and help me speak differently. Help me. That's all it is. Walk with me. God in you. He says, I'll give you a helper. Number two, he goes, I'm going to place you in a family, a forever family, a together family where we practice the way of Jesus together. This is what the Together Initiative is all about. We want to be a family again, learning to walk together. God places you in a family. Don't ignore the resources of family. I've got a little son sitting right there. When he needs something from me, I'm ready. When I need something from him, he's ready. That's what it means to be family. And we walk together, practicing the way of Jesus, worshiping so that we can go out on a common mission. He says, I'm going to give you a family. This is how I'll provide for you. Number three, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. In the dark night of the soul or in the grind of 2020, he's not going anywhere. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm here. Show me what you want to show me. I've already seen it. I've already paid for it. I'm not going anywhere. The reassurance of God's presence is one of the most beautiful promises of the scripture. And then lastly, he says, I so deeply identify with my people that I share in their suffering. Do you remember when Jesus confronted this man by the name of Saul, who was soon to become the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, and he called his name and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting them? He said, why are you persecuting me? So deeply affiliated, shares the heart, mind, soul of his people. He goes, when they are in the pit, I am too. And this is the God we serve. Our lives may be filled with different layers of fear, but the gospel is this incredible reassurance that God is with us, that he's working good from the difficulty. He's not going anywhere. Jesus offers himself. This is the God that we want to be about at this church. If you're here and you've got questions, you've been here a long time and you've got questions, let us know. This church is about the gospel, being a family and going there together. Let's pray and then we'll celebrate a meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. I don't know what's running through each person's mind, but I hope it's spinning and I hope that they're thinking deeply about your love. I hope that they're wondering, could this actually be true? Lord, some people are here saying, I've tried to walk with Jesus. And that dark night of the soul took control. It took over. We admit that that's a reality too. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, you would meet with each person. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember maybe some of the difficult things that we're facing, but the exact same time to look for the way in which you are on the move, reworking, rewriting, renewing. And when we're in the middle of that story and it doesn't have its conclusion yet, it is so hard to have faith, and that's why we need a family. That's why we need the helper. That's why we lean into the Holy Spirit. That's why we come here every six and a half days. (laughs) That's why we gather over and over again because life is not always easy. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through in my life, my family, our church, our heart, our city, that we might see Christ again. Even though we do have a perspective, I pray that we wouldn't war like a tribe would. I pray that we would make peace. I pray we would offer grace. We pray that your family would expand because Jesus is that sort of father, that sort of king. We eat this upcoming meal in honor of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.